first new message received Monday, January 27th at 3.18 p.m. Hey, lad, now that's run out of MEPs to talk to. And just in case you didn't catch the accent there, that, this is Richard Kemp speaking. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Um, not quite, Richard. Sorry. Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. My name is John Potter. We have another brilliant interview today and I'm very excited because I'm not sure anyone has had such a unique journey through politics as this gentleman we're about to speak to. So he was an MP, he was then became a councillor after losing his seat and now was an MEP and now I assume he's going to go back down to being a councillor again. Um, on the line we have Martin Horwood. Hello Martin. Hello. I would regard being a councillor as going down, you know. Well, I, I mean, in the general, <laughs> maybe on the general scale of constituents, will be generous <laughs> in that way. <laughs> yeah, rather fewer constituents. That's true. Um, no, but thank you so much for coming on. So, how has your week been? Your last week as an MEP. Well, it's been a bit frenetic, actually. I mean, we have, you know, been starting to prepare, obviously, for closing our offices at the end of next week uh, on Brexit Day, on the assumption that the European Parliament is going to. Uh, vote to consent to the Brexit deal. Of course, this is Brexit, so anything can happen. But I mean, that is, we've had preliminary votes in some committees. So um, that does seem to be the way it's going. And of course, we've been having our final meetings of various uh, things like I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee and the International Development Committee and the delegation on Iran. And in each of these meetings, people are saying how much they're going to miss Britain and how you know, great it's been working with us and it's uh, it's been, you know, moderately emotional <laughs> time actually. Yeah. I did I did see though on your Facebook page and Twitter that you decided to have a, a Alistair Carmichael whiskey session uh, a few days ago. So <laughs> well, I, you I would bring that up with <laughs> you. Yeah. Well I do hope you've recovered. That's all I'm thinking. Because I've well, been on, I've been on one of those and it took me a few days to get over it. <laughs> the um the, the the whiskey was in moderate very moderate quantities. Um I mean what what it'll take us some time to recover from is our chief whip in the European Parliament, Barb Gibson, singing "Old Lang Syne" <laughs> along in a mashup with a German MEP who sang "Ode to Joy" in its in the original German. And I have to say, there was not a dry eye in the place, especially after a few drams of whiskey. Obviously, an incredible changing time for you. But I mean, did you? Can I ask when when you lost your seat as an MP? Did you immediately think? I want to get right back on the horse and do something again. I mean, obviously you stood again in 2017, but would it like you just thought I've got to keep fighting? I think I did, yes. And actually, I did fight the, the 2017 general election. And I suppose if you're going to do that, I mean, every parliamentary candidate knows there's no real let up. It's a constant campaigning situation. So um, I did commit myself pretty quickly to going back into that. I didn't actually when we. We, I mean, we came close, but we didn't quite get Cheltenham back in 2017. Mm. Um, and after that, I thought, right, let's take a bit of a back seat for a while, especially as there were there were personal reasons why I couldn't carry on as the as the parliamentary candidate. So it was for a while. It was a time to put family first and other things first. Mm. But then I was kind of tempted back into standing for Cheltenham Borough Council. And then <laughs> you know, this, this unexpected European election came up. I, I don't know. I'm just an election junkie, maybe. Yeah, there's, um, there's, I, there's something wrong with us, I think, with the people that stand <laughs> in so many elections like we but do. It was, but it was more than that with the European election. It was this feeling that if I was going to look my kids in the face, I, 
I wanted to say, look, we really did try to stop this. We really, we we didn't go down without a fight. Um, and that was, you know, that's what I put as my message on my manifesto to be on the list. And that's that's why I wanted to stand. So I'm glad we've, we've done it. And if, if this really is the, the end game, then, you know, at least we bloody well tried. <laughs> yeah. And how did it compare Westminster to Brussels? Obviously, uh, there's a lot of chat of Brussels being a lot more collegiate and a lot more um, used to different voices. But did you find that as someone who's been in both? It was it was a very very different environment. I mean, on one level, it's just. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a bit of a stereotypical thing to say. It's just a more modern, organised, efficient place. You know, I mean, if I just tell you the voting, I mean, the voting is so fast it it's almost impossible to keep up at times. I mean, <laughs> literally, you have you have press button voting that takes place in seconds. If you look on my my Twitter feed, you'll you'll actually see some film of it. So they have, you know, they say the vote is open, you press the button, the vote is closed. It's that quick. And when I explained to European colleagues that in the Westminster Parliament, the equivalent process was to divide into two groups. One <laughs> walks into one oak panelled lobby, the other walks into another oak panelled lobby. You walk past clerks mounted on desks who check your name off, and then you walk through two doors held at a particular angle so that only one person can go through at a time where you bow to tellers who then paraded back into the jail. I mean yeah. it just it's a different, different world, isn't it? And it it's just some bits of Westminster seem now to me so ludicrously archaic um compared to the efficiency and the modernity of the European Parliament. But as you as you sort of hinted there, one of the biggest differences is of course that no one has an absolute majority in the European Parliament. There are a whole range of political groups from from some pretty unpleasant uh, far right parties right through to the Marxist group on the other end and every shade in between. And to get something through, you do need to collaborate. You need to compromise. You need to work together. And it comes completely naturally to people in the European Parliament. Um, and you guess from a lot of people's political backgrounds in other countries in Europe where coalitions and working together and compromise is more common. And our system now, again, just seems ludicrously confrontational, this absolute black and white kind of the government's always right or the opposition's always wrong. Um, and you spend most of your time as an opposition MP in Westminster losing votes all the time because the government always pushes things through. You always oppose them. Whereas in, I'd say in European Parliament, it's great being a liberal because you're in the you're the centre block, mm. and very few people can make a majority without you. So oh, actually, right. so, most of the time we voted on the winning side. So being kingmakers is always always a popular a choice. A bit, yeah. And I think we improved things as a result. I mean, before we got there, actually, in the previous mandates, the previous sort of parliaments, um, the socialist and the sort of moderate right, the Christian Democrat group, the EPP. Um, between them could always command a majority. So they did tend to stitch things up between those two big parties. But we broke that in the European elections last year. So now they have to talk to us. They probably talk to the Greens and to other people um, in order to, to reach compromises and reach a majority. And it's, um, it's a very instructive process. We have a lot to learn from European politics. How much has the balance changed with obviously 16 uh, Lib Dem MPs leaving the Renew group? Is the balance still there? Because obviously we still care about what happens in Europe, even though we are not going to be a part of it. So will the Renew group still have that sort of influence? 
the balance will be slightly different. Um, I mean, they'll go down. Let me see. I just have happened to have the numbers at my fingertips. Have the spreadsheet. They'll, <laughs> they'll go down from 108 seats to 97. And in fact, that Christian Democrat uh, European People's Party that I mentioned will go up from 182 to 187. Um, they're not replacing all of the British seats, but they are replacing some of them. So in the Liberal grouping, there's going to be one extra um, Liberal um, MEP from Spain, one from Ireland, one from Denmark, two from France and one from the Netherlands are going to come in as new MEPs. Um, but yes, the balance will slightly shift against the Liberal grouping in the Parliament. Right. That's And can I bring us now a little bit closer to home? Because obviously we're, we're leaving because of the general election uh, and Cheltenham obviously because you were only 2,000 votes behind in 2017, were a target seat again, uh, and came painfully close to winning it this time, under 1,000 votes, 981, I think, the majority is for the Conservatives. So, I mean, how are the Cheltenham team doing? Is there a sense... Because directly after the election, because it was Christmas, I did feel the Lib Dems were a bit flat and felt a bit like they were just figuring out what went wrong. But I don't think we've really got out of that malaise yet. I mean, what's your impression? How are the Team Cheltenham doing? I, I, team Cheltenham seem OK. I mean, I've, I've talked to people since and I've talked to Max, uh, who was our fantastic candidate uh, this time. And, I mean, it was, it was a monumental campaign. Mm. I mean, the guy won 27,000 votes, which would have been enough to win, I think, the previous four elections. Yeah. Um, but as you said, came just agonisingly short of of displacing this sort of um, Tory MP who just votes the party line 100% of the time. Yeah. So it was really, really bitterly disappointing, and especially after expectations were so high. Yeah. And I think it will take people emotionally a little time to recover from that, and members perhaps a little time to recover from that. So. Um, I, th- I think it's okay. People have had a bit of a break, but we have local elections coming up in May, like many people, yeah. and we're going to have to get back in the saddle and crack on and, and do well in those local elections. And we've got a terrific uh, local council team to defend in May. Uh, my seat's personally not up, um, but we've got some terrific councillors that we want to defend uh, and keep the, the Lib Dem control of Cheltenham really uh, solid. And and we talk a lot on this podcast about campaigning. And one of the key things that we always want to put across is that don't wait for election time to start campaigning. The best time is now or even summer. But obviously the general election got in the way a little bit. But actually get back on that horse, get back knocking on doors. And that's what will make May a success. And that's what we need to happen is to change that narrative. And let's have some successes in May. Well, I have to tell you, John, I came back from Brussels this week and I found my focus delivery round sitting on the... <laughs> sitting in my porch. And I thought, right, OK, that's fine. The, that's back to reality <laughs> no with a bump. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dwelling on, everything in, uh, dwelling on everything in Brussels or, you know, moping over the general election, it's back to work. And the local elections have come up this week because uh, the party has decided that we will select our new leader after the local elections, so not to distract yeah. for them. Do you think that uh, has been the right choice by the party leadership? I think maybe it has, actually. I think it gives the candidates time to re- to really reflect. And I think, maybe, I, don't, I don't know whether we did it in too much of a rush last time. I thought I thought Jo was actually a terrific choice, and I was very happy to support her in the leadership election campaign. But I think she actually did a good job under fire uh, in the general election campaign. 
but you know giving us a little bit more time perhaps a good thing allowing people to reflect um allowing us to get to know the candidates and, and take a little more time over it this time not such a bad thing and actually we don't want to be um just swamped by what's going on in the labor party either so i think having it a little bit back is is okay yeah. do you think do you think how, how do you think the labor party contest may affect the local elections for the lib dems because uh, in my seat in particular uh, i've found it the last few years very easy to because i'm tory facing uh to convince moderate labor people to vote for me because they really dislike corbyn now if rebecca long bailey's elected then it's probably more of the same from a local point of view but actually if they pick a more moderate character say Keir Starmer do you think that's going to be going to make it a little bit more of a struggle for the Lib Dems to squeeze that Labour vote? I don't know I mean I think if, if you I mean we're also Tory facing generally uh, although there are some some pockets with a, a different profile um, and it does make it easy to squeeze those last remaining moderate Labour voters out of voting for a party that just now seems in the grip of a far left clique yeah. that will not let go and is immune to having lost election after election yeah. and doesn't seem to want to change. Um, but at the same time, we have to reach out to those people who voted Conservative in these recent elections, which was actually the winning party in Cheltenham, um, and say there is an alternative to the Conservatives. And of course, what we were hit with in general election after general election was you can't risk voting Lib Dem just in case they let in Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And they'll have the same message about Rebecca Long-Bailey if she's elected. So I'm afraid our star is tied to Labour just a little bit. Okay. And I think in the long term, it's probably in our interests for the, uh, the Labour Party to have at least not too scary a leader. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> um, I, I, and you're right. I mean, um, lots of people voted Lib Dem because Blair didn't terrify Tories is and and it and if like I said it came up time time and time and time again on the door that people were terrified of a Corbyn government and yeah. it, it, and, and and wouldn't risk lending their vote to the Lib Dems. Yeah. Mind you, this is also about good marketing and the Tories knew what they were doing. Yeah. And yeah. they have identified two or three very simple core messages that they pump away at at general elections, and it used to be strong and stable. Funnily enough, they weren't doing that <laughs> quite as much. Well. I think why, you know, maybe doesn't sell quite as well on the doorstep as it used to. Um, but get Brexit done was clearly a very powerful message, not just for leavers, but also for Remainers, because it says just get it over with, you know, just put it behind us. Um, but the other clear message was about, you know, don't vid, you know, vote Lib Dem, get Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Now. You know, we should have had some simple, clear messages that we should have been plugging in retaliation. And maybe we just didn't really crystallise what those messages were. Stop Brexit wasn't enough. No. And actually, it cut out half the electorate, of course. Yeah. Um, it was a very powerful message when we were in the European election campaign, where we were trying to consolidate that remain big Remain vote around us. And in the proportional system you use in European elections, that worked like a dream. Yeah. It was great. Saying bollocks to Brexit sent out the clearest possible signal of where we stood but you know in Cheltenham nearly half the electorate voted for Brexit uh, that's true in many other general election uh, constituencies so it's not actually a particularly good place to start and base your entire general election campaign on and 
we should have had a few more clear, strong messages to put through to particular groups. And I don't think we did that well enough. And I wonder when we start thinking about what our next, obviously the general election five years away, but actually start getting a message and start really hammering home what we want to see going forward. Because we, I'm, I'm very positive on our manifesto. It's full of lovely things we've been trying to enact for many, many, many years. But actually, sometimes, are we selling it early enough? So we get bored of these slogans, but we're getting bored of it just as the electorate's starting to finally hear them. And it's whether how quickly do we need to latch on to what we want to stand for? I'm not sure you want to do it too early, in a way. I mean, I think it's important to have strong campaigning and really it is marketing messages throughout that whole period, as you quite rightly said, and it's the same for national parties as it is for, for local council groups, and you never stop campaigning. Yeah. But it doesn't always have to be the same message, and you can have fresh things coming through at different times. But I think by the time you get to the general election, you need to have your set of two or three very strong, simple messages. And I don't think the kind of, um, you know, fairer, stronger type mm. stuff the, they're too generic um you need to below that i mean you can have a slogan for the party as a whole that's okay but it's not absolutely critical it doesn't seem to me what you do need is underneath that you just need some strong campaigning messages on issues like the nhs you know if we had been campaigning perhaps on something like mental health very strongly uh, in this election campaign that's a very powerful issue for people it's not something which the tories have a great deal of credibility because they actually backtracked on mental health after we left government yeah. um it's not been a particularly powerful issue for labor but if i've had people coming up to me that because of who said that because of what norman lamb did in government yeah. because of some of the things the stands we took on mental health and our willingness to talk about it that was the reason why they were voting liberal democrat and there aren't that many issues that have that effect on people so even if it wasn't that it, it harks back if you look back to, to charles kennedy's day you know the the one p on income tax in those days for education that was a really powerful simple policy-based message it wasn't a sort of vacuous slogan that you stuck on stuck underneath the party logo mm. but it was a very strong marketing message and it really broke through so we need those kind of messages and we need to develop them and maybe it doesn't have to be the final set all the way through but i think we do need to to just be a bit smarter and sharper it was interesting this election gone because almost the credibility of pledges and promises had almost been completely broken it was it was all i mean the, the tories with manifesto was basically a pamphlet and mm. the and the amount of things that labor were giving away in this there was just no credibility on it so i wonder where we would have what we could have done different so because i loved the penny on income tax to pay for the health service and and, and social yes. care as well and and mental health but in when you have all these this huge custard of figures that's been thrown at you by by the Labour Party. I wonder if it gets lost in those debates because it's almost like all, all parties lose credibility. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. And I think the Tory party didn't depend on those, those spending pledges. They were a sort of defensive move. They had their core messages and they kept on banging on about them. Um, Labour really did shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, it just sounded as though they were you know, promising to pour money on every, everybody that asked for it at every turn. And I think that really did damage their campaign. And they didn't have that strong, simple message, really, uh, to, to counter it. Um, but I think you can make these pledges credible if you just stick to them. And I'm afraid 
you know, as Ryan Kutze used to tell us all uh, when he was mm. doing national election strategy, you just have to keep repeating this stuff again and again and yep. again and again. And it's like you do with focus leaflets, really. Once someone has heard it about 16 times, it just begins to penetrate. Yeah. And <laughs> so you a, keep on banging away at it. It's that point when, when you knock on doors, whether here in Preston or anywhere in the country, and they start repeating back to you your exactly. lines. You think, right, exactly. when, as soon as they say, well, Labour can't win here, I think those bar charts have worked wonders. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you now going back even further. You read modern history at, Ooh, at, at, uni, at university. <laughs> so from that from that point of view, how do you think historians will look upon this era of British politics, basically from twenty sixteen to whatever comes next? How do you think history will remember it? Well, I mean, it clearly is a historic moment. I mean, if we leave the European Union next Friday, that is a turning point not just for Britain. But for Europe, actually, it's the first time a major nation has left the European Union. And it does mark a, a sea change, I think. And it'll be interesting to see how Europe responds. I mean, the consensus in the European Parliament at the moment uh, is to convene a conference next year on the future of Europe to look at reforms that can be made. But the track record isn't brilliant on really getting something concrete out of these kind of conferences and trying and something that will really make the European Union a bit more relevant to to local people and to people in in each country, um, but I think it also needs somehow to respond to the changed media environment and the way in which people find out about things and learn about things. I mean, we have relied on mainstream media and the mainstream TV channels for a long time, but they're increasingly under threat. And actually, it's interesting that may be another sea change that we're seeing now. Um, not just the rise of populism and nationalism and, and some quite scary right-wing politics, but the willingness of the Johnson government to talk about, you know, how the BBC's got to change. That feels scarily like some of the attacks on independent media in other parts of Europe. He started to talk about reshaping the relationship between Parliament and the judges. Yeah. That again, you know, has nasty echoes of what's happening in, in Eastern Europe. But at least in Eastern Europe, the European Union is there to say you're not meeting yeah, yeah. <laughs> properly European Union standards. We're going to be outside that safety net. So we may be, you know, we may think Brexit wasn't the culmination of a kind of populist tide, but perhaps just the beginning of some quite scary political times. And I think we've got some quite fundamental arguments and debates coming up. And, and I suppose it, it highlights once again how important it is to keep fighting because governments that get an easy ride make terrible and bad decisions whereas if we keep fighting the the more likely it is that they will drop or won't do those bad things that you've just been mentioning yes no i think that's exactly right although there is also the conventional wisdom in in westminster that if you've got a big majority you're more likely to get rebellions mm. but i think um it's clear that the the johnson leadership is a bit more authoritarian than even the Conservative Party might have been used to in recent years. Um, it's a very different style to Cameron and even to Theresa May, with Cummings making quite clear threats, for instance, to ministers just recently, that if they don't perform, they're going to be out in the reshuffle. Um, I think a lot of the reason why moderates stood down at the general election is because candidates were expected to really sign up to a... To a I don't know if they literally had a loyalty pledge, but it's mm. really... They were going to toe the line. And I think there'll be quite heavy enforcement by uh, by the Tory majority now. And, and so, 
And do you it'll think, be interesting to see how that plays out, actually. And do you think that because the new blood, you know, a lot of some of the old guard have left, you know, the Ken Clarks and stuff like that, who would basically say, I'm not listening to that sort of rubbish and kind of publicly do that, whereas now there's a lot of new blood in that Conservative Party uh, and on those green benches. So it's, it's more, they're less likely to rebel when you've been in there for five weeks instead of, you know, nearly five decades. Yeah, well, I think that's right. And I think... Actually, that move before the general mm. election, when Johnson withdrew the whip from that whole tranche of the Tory moderate, yeah. now, you know, with hindsight, perhaps looks like quite a canny move that those people were then not Conservative candidates at the general election and have been removed from the parliamentary party quite yeah. effectively. They have excised some of the moderate uh, and most authoritative voices. I mean, it's, it was an extraordinary move and lots of people at the time said, oh, this isn't very smart. Yeah, but, me uh, included. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid Com Cummings' reputation as the evil genius probably, you know, does go up one notch after that, because they've got a much more compliant parliamentary party now. Let's see how that pans out. Well, going from one evil genius to now, let's imagine we have an evil genius in yourself, who is now <laughs> who is Thanks. who is in. You are in charge of the country. You with a oh. with a massive majority. If you could enact one policy tomorrow, what would it be? Well, I'm I'm tempted to say reverse Brexit, but um, <laughs> send a quick letter of extension. But I'm not sure we get. <laughs> I, I think uh, Emmanuel Macron and others are now so fed to the back teeth of Brexit they might want us gone anyway. Yeah. Um, do you know? Actually, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it might be around mental health. Yeah. I think we face a real epidemic, especially amongst young people, of mental health problems. I don't think our education system is geared up to respond to it properly. I think it's still about, you know, providing odd bits of counselling and not looking at the entire environment that young people experience these days, including social media. We need a really holistic and deep look at how to um, cure this or prevent this, uh, this epidemic of poor mental health amongst our young people. Um, and look at mental health in the in the round for the whole of society as well yeah. i think it's a real challenge and it's only going to get more serious so i think my first step might be to immediately set up i don't know what are you supposed to do set up a royal commission or something like yeah. that but but to really start to look at the the entire environment in which poor mental health is is emerging in such uh, a, a significant way in our society now and also, and linking that with social care, I mean, any of us like myself who are county councillors as well know just what a strain mental health within social care is actually becoming, where these people who are struggling on their own are now ending up in hospital and not being treated in their home where it would actually do them more good. It's, like you say, it's a proper holistic approach we need to it. Yes. And of course, exactly the flip side of that, though, is that where we've really stressed over recent decades the importance of getting people back into the community. If the community support is not there, yeah. if social services have been stripped back by cuts to local government um, and you know social work becomes a, an embattled profession for all sorts of different reasons, um, then you know that is, a, that is not very much of a solution either. You end up with people being isolated in their own homes and accommodation and falling into trouble without anybody really noticing. Mm. Um, so yes, as you said, it needs a it's, a it's a really holistic approach that needs to be taken, and we really need to step back and look at uh, what we're doing as a society. 
and and you mentioned local government and obviously within the next month local uh, local authorities will be deciding their budgets going forward how do you think the conservatives are going to do because at some point there are too many councils like preston etc that are burning through their reserves and at some point they're just not going to cope um, do you think the government is going to have to grasp this, particularly in the, the new areas they've now captured in the North and Midlands that are struggling um, councils? Do you think the Tories are going to start pumping money into local government? I mean, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? I think this is one of the going to be. I think this is going to be one of the areas where this tests out this new configuration of the Tory Party in Parliament. Um, are they really going to be as good as their word and really start? You know, relaxing the austerity mindset and if they do then local government and especially in the north is going to be one area where they could if they wanted to spend quite significant sums of money um, on trying to support councils that are really running into serious difficulty um, but, but is that really the, the Tory mindset mm. I don't know yeah. I think we may find that they've they add up the numbers especially after Brexit and think actually we made completely unaffordable promises in that general election campaign yeah. we are going to have to try and row back on some of this and we'll try not to make it too obvious and too public um and there could be some real battles ahead over those you know local government budgets perhaps one of the the most obvious ones and actually if it, if there was one big weakness of the coalition and i'm generally i i was part of the coalition i defend the coalition i think it's the right decision but the the willingness of the Tories to cut and do upfront cuts to local government at the beginning of that that yeah. period of government was in retrospect a huge mistake and I think some councils have, have never recovered from it I mean Cheltenham being good Lib Dem run council we've uh, we've weathered the storm and actually had some pretty canny decisions that have worked out quite well so we're not quite under the financial pressure that I think especially some county uh, councils are under yeah. um, but I think the storm is coming and it'll be interesting because I always I, I completely agree with, you with what you said about coalition because I had a I had the feeling that the coalition kind of position was that because councils did have reserves at that point was that they can handle some of those cuts and then hopefully when the economy starts to pick up like it was at the end of coalition we will then start to be able to fund local government better again but then obviously. Brexit happens, the pound falls through the floor, we no longer have the GDP growth, and suddenly there's suddenly nowhere else for the for local government to go. And like I said, something like Preston is only a couple of years away from going bust, unless something changes. Yeah, and of course we have seen one or two councils already go in, in effect yeah. go bust. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, in most cases the reserves are pretty thin. I mean, the, there's been some... I, I, I don't want to uh, cast aspersions, but there's been some pretty creative budgeting yeah. <laughs> by many councils over many years trying to make the numbers add up and not make too many frontline cuts. But it's become very, very hard in most places. Uh, and I'm sure that's that's an almost universal experience. So we're, we're now coming to the end of our interview, but thank you very much. Now, one thing I, I must ask you is, what's next? What's next for Martin Horwood? <laughs> obviously, obviously, you do have your councillor stuff. You do, you're probably standing for Police and Crime Commissioner or something because you love elections so much. But what's next for Martin? Um, I, I think what's next is to catch up on a few council emails that I may possibly <laughs> have missed over the last seven months. Because we didn't really... I mean, remember, we didn't really expect the European election to happen. We then... Personally, I didn't expect to get elected, uh, and that was 
that was quite unexpected. And then I expected this to be finished by October. So, you know, that I've been putting a few people off <laughs> a few things. And I think my wife has uh, quite a short, well, quite a long short list of, uh, of things that have to be done around the house. As well. <laughs> so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my time. I'm going to catch up on stuff. Um, just think about it and not rush into anything else. But um, I suspect it will involve some politics, don't you? Yes, always. Um, <laughs> and my final question before I let you go, we've asked every single person this one, just to try and get a little bit of an insight into yourself. If you could only have one meal, right, ever, what would it be? What is your go-to meal? What is the Martin Horwood special? Um, do you know, I spent a year or so of my life in India. Oh, right. And um, I ended up, eating this variation on dal and rice with a vegetable in the same masala sauce that always seemed to be quite similar, even if it was different vegetables. And, you know, it's such a lovely, wholesome meal. A good dal roti is is pretty young, uh, pretty irreplaceable, actually. Um, I mean, I have to tell you, the one thing about Strasbourg, they they do like cheese and dough and stuff. <laughs> it's not nothing I ate in Strasbourg really would <laughs> get away from Dal Roti. I mean, I love Strasbourg. It's a very pretty city, and you know, lots of lots of nice things going on. And the politics is fascinating. Um, Brussels is very Belgian foodie, and it's all a bit rich. So no, I just you know head back for a good Dal Roti. Sounds sounds brilliant. Well, all I can say is thank you so so much for coming on the Lib Dem Pod. To all our listeners, please follow Martin. He's on Twitter at Martin Chelt. You're also on, you've got a Facebook page as well. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for spending the time and, and allowing our listeners to hear your perspective as an ex-MP and as an ex-MEP. So thank you so, so much. Thank you very much, John. Huge thank you for, to Martin Horwood there. Really, really, I mean, I'm blown away just how good some of our Lib Dem MEPs have been. I mean, I, I expected them to be good, but they are such champions of liberalism. They do such a fine job in the short months they've been there. And I want to thank Martin, who is kind of when me and Richard Kemp talk about the people who just never give up on politics and keep fighting. I think Martin's the perfect example of it. And I hope everyone in Cheltenham who had came so close to get with under a thousand votes of winning back that seat and just missing out. They're, they really are superb, some of these teams. And it goes to say, you know, strong local council base leading to an MP. It's the same message we've been saying. Start now, ready for May. Start knocking on doors. Get your focus, leave it out. Start getting your issues together. You know, you've got council budgets coming up. If you're not a councillor, have a look what they're doing in the council budget. Ask questions. There will always be a public question time, usually in councils. So go ask a question. Get yourself in there. Give a press release to the press. So the fight is ongoing. We must keep fighting because if the Tories have another bad local election like they did last year, it will end this Boris bounce, whatever, and suddenly they'll think, hang on, we if they suddenly start losing councils, losing councillors across the country, that knocks them back. They won't be as cocksure as they are right now. So, And we can do that. Everyone listening to this podcast, you can do something about that. So go out there, pick a ward and win it. That's key. Pick a ward and win it. Let's show what Lib Dems can do right here, right now. And with that, we will call an end to this podcast. Do follow Martin on Twitter. Do follow everything to do with the Lib Dem podcast at at Lib Dem Pod. That's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And you can also follow myself at John Potter LD. You can 
on all things to do with politics, rugby and food that I kind of uh, do in Preston. So thank you so, so much for listening. We'll be back with more episodes uh, coming very, very soon. I hope you're liking how regular these come out. Do share it. Let people know that the Lib Dem pod is out there. Do it, And hopefully I'll see some of you at conference as well. That's coming up soon. If we do, I'm more than happy to have conversations with each and every one of you. Everyone's got a perspective of where the Lib Dem should go next. Let's hear from you. Get in contact. More than happy to have you on the show. So thank you very much for listening. Do have a good rest of your day and we'll have another episode very soon.